Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guest. And i got to tell you something, people. The gentleman on my show today, he's part of, in one of my favorite comedies ever, Best in Show. He was great in that, and he's been, done so much, acted on stage, acted on TV, acted in movies, he's written screenplays, he's written, created TV series, and now he has a book that's about his wonderful life called Caught My Pants Down and Other Tales from a Life in Hollywood. My guest is Jim Pettick. How you doing, Jim? Very good. How are you? All right? I'm doing well. It's good to have you on. You know, I I always think, like, you were in uh, Best in Show, and, and I got to ask you, I mean, how fun was it making that movie? Just because your guys' scenes are great, because everyone, we've all flipped around and watched the dog show. You know, if it's something you sit there and you go, oh, you know, so we'll all just watch it. How fun was that doing? Uh, it was great. I mean, uh, to be honest with you, uh, at the time, I was extraordinarily jet-lagged because I'd flown in from, from London to do the, the, the film. I was working on a BBC show that I'd written and was producing. And um, I had three days off in the middle of our production week after giving notes on my sitcom. I got on a plane from London to, to Vancouver and arrived there and met Fred Willard and Eugene Levy and Chris Guest. Um, and we were supposed to do that, the, our scenes in three days, and they were running behind. So uh, the, the Tuesday came and went, the Wednesday came and went. And um, so we shot everything in one day, so pre-dawn to post-dusk, um, just Fred and me in an empty stadium with a few extras behind us to make it look full. And we just watched footage of the dog show that they already shot. And uh, or Chris would just say, OK, now we're doing the hound group. Off you go, the two of you. And I would talk kind of, you know, facts and figures and Fred would uh, say really stupid things. And it, it was it was a great object lesson for me in how to play a straight man, because I'd often been the, the, the kind of clown in a comedy duo. So it was pretty it was it was it was a really fun experience to actually go, OK, this is going to be different. I now have to get laughs by reactions and make him twice as funny and, and make myself funny that way. Um, so that that was a it was really a, a great experience in that sense. But I don't think that much film that's been shot in one day could have end, ever ended up in a movie, because we're in the basically the second half of the movie. So that's forty forty five minutes, um, you know, in and out the whole time. So that's a hell of a lot of footage that was shot in one day. Now your book, your book came out. What made you decide to write a book? Because I always think you, you know you've written TV creativity you're in movies and i always think you know when you're writing something like that you're writing a story but this is actually your story so i would always think i mean you've gotten great reviews but if someone was like oh you know what a lock of shit you'd be like you'd get pissed off because it's more personal i mean what made you decide to sit there and do this yeah you're right it's really personal i mean it's thank god that people have uh, reviewed it nicely and said lovely things and it sort of seems to be selling on a reasonable level um, in the first month, uh, but yeah, the reason well, it came about because I'd done a talk at the Screen Actors Guild. They'd asked me to do this talk called "Inside the Industry." Uh, let's talk about it, and, and it was a so two hundred seat theatre in Beverly Hills, and I I wasn't sure what to do. I was interviewed by a Wall Street Journal reporter, and I I just scribbled down half a dozen kind of funny stories that I remembered. Um, through my career, and, and I went on, and, and, and Eric asked me these questions, uh, Eric Schwartzel, and, and I kind of weaved those stories in, and it was turned out it was supposed to be forty-five minutes, and I think we ended up doing an hour and a half with with Q and A afterwards, and I really enjoyed it. I, I loved kind of um, 
just being in front of an audience again. I hadn't done theatre for about 12 years. So I came away thinking, well, maybe I'll just write this as a one-man show and I could go around and do this now and again. And I started writing and, and soon realised it was going to be a 10-hour show, uh, which I thought <laughs> would test the patience of any audience and my endurance. So then I thought, well, maybe it's going to be a book. And then, uh, I say fortunately, but uh, divine intervention, um, we, we, we COVID hit us. And so I, I, what would have taken me probably five years took me about five months to write because we were in lockdown. And um, it wasn't, wasn't easy. It wasn't easy to write because I'm not used to looking backwards. I'm used to looking forwards or right in front of me. So to look over my shoulder and kind of assess what had happened as well as tell these stories was was kind of an interesting experience and 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 the the book evolved after that first draft quite a bit and um I, i'm happy to say that now it's 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 hopefully entertaining for everybody not just people who are interested in show business or in show business i wrote it for everybody uh, it's a story that i hope that the stories work on their own terms and 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 it became a bit more philosophical as i was writing it because i kind of draw conclusions or, or morals or lessons from each of the things that happen um, in a life sense uh, and not just sort of anything to do with, with the world of showbiz. Now, you know, you said it was something of doing it like a white man show. Well, you had written a, the, the, the play about the soccer goalie. Now, did you write that or did you just star in that? Yeah, no, I didn't write it. It was written by Peter Flannery, who was a, a, a very successful writer in England at the time. And I was an unknown actor who'd worked for a couple of years I was offered a job in, in uh, San Francisco area with the drama school I'd been to in England doing, um, I was just directing a couple of shows. And it was a three month stint and, and I took this show with me. I'd got permission from the writer to, to do the show in, in America if I could find anyone, you know, <laughs> who would do it uh, with an unknown actor and a, about a subject no one gave a crap about in 1981. So I went around a lot of theatres in, in the Bay Area and they all said no, quite rightly. Um, who are you and what, what is soccer? And, um, and then about, I think, a few days before I was about to fly back to, to England, um, the director of this small 99-seat theatre in San Francisco said that our first show was, he said, our first show's fallen out and we need to get something in there between three and four weeks' time. Can you do it? And so I said yes immediately and then cancelled my flight home, hired a wonderful English director called Richard Side, who I'd met in, in San Francisco, and, and we got the show on. And um, it was an interesting experience. I mean, it was very physical, non-stop, moving, talking, shouting, diving, jumping, leaping. It was, it was a real endurance. And the first night was fine. It was filled with people who I directed at the drama school, and they all obviously wanted to see their their, their um, teacher director fall flat in his face. And then the second night, I had four people in the audience, which was interesting. And uh, then the reviews came out the next day, and um, fortunately, they were kind of something I couldn't have written myself. They were so wonderful. And the show got extended. It sold out immediately in the initial run and then extended twice, and then it kind of got the attention of other theatres around the country and it took me to New York and um, I got an agent there and and then I was sent for my first audition um, for a play called Present Laughter by, by um, Noel Coward, which George C. Scott was starring in on Broadway and directing as well, and I got the part. Uh, so it was a, one of those rare instances where my career went into overdrive in a short space of time, from seven months, I think, from doing the show in front of four people, I was starring in a hit Broadway show. 
which ran for quite a while. Um, so, yeah, I mean, my career has been very much tortoise in the hare. It's just been a wonderful, slow, steady climb. And that, but that was one of the few times when it had went into overdrive, uh, and, and I was propelled into the world of Broadway for three years. I did, uh, I did three or four shows on Broadway, pretty much nonstop when I was there. Broadway. I got to ask you. It's funny. Stephen Weber was on the show a few weeks ago, and he said Broadway's so beautiful, but backstage they're just shitholes. Like he said, you know, the, the, the some of the theaters they're just backstage are awful. What is it like for you going on Broadway as an actor? I mean, I would think it's like if, if you're a baseball player, be like stepping up to home plate in the World Series. Yeah, well, first of all, Stephen should take a look at West End theaters. <laughs> if he thinks they're shitholes, um, you know, West End theaters are, uh, whew, uh, and they're small shitholes. Um, but on our theater, we were at the Brooks Atkinson. It was actually all right backstage. I mean, it's not nearly as fancy as some people would imagine. I mean, like I did. I, we we tried out. I'd done two shows at the Kennedy Center too in DC, and those are all high. You know, in, in those days were very high tech, deluxe kind of modern dressing rooms and everything. Um, it was. It was. Um, yeah, that that was a major step up for me. I mean, I'd done regional rep in England, small repertory theaters, and uh, a small theater in San Francisco, and children's theater touring children's schools in England. So suddenly to find myself on Broadway with a major star and the first major star I ever worked for was extraordinary. I mean, and, and the whole world, you know, it's suddenly it's Saudi's opening nights and, you know, wherever you want to go, people let you in restaurants. Um, and you're, you're in sort of the tabloids and the, the col gossip columns um, a lot of the time. It, it was a very heady time for me. It was, a, it was quite extraordinary and hobnobbing with actors I sort of just seen in films and, and, and uh, from afar, you know. What made you get into acting? You know, everyone has different things. As a kid, were you creative? Was it something that, I know some people fell into it later in high school, you know, they, they played sports and they took an acting class and they saw all these beautiful girls and they said, the hell with sports, we're going to act. What, yeah, what, well, what, my path was a bit similar to that. I, I wanted to be a professional soccer player, a professional footballer. But by the age of 14, I realized that I had one small impediment there and that I was absolutely crap at football. I, I mean, I don't mean crap in terms of I captained my school team and I played at a very high level at university, but I was, I was so crap I couldn't clean the boots of the apprentices that were cleaning the boots of the, of the professional players. It's a big jump from playing in a university team to... Um, or, or school team to, to its professional level. So about 14 or 15, I knew that that, that wasn't going to happen for me. And, and I got pretty bored at school. I went to an all-boys boarding school. And I got, I was quite good academically, actually, but I, I got very bored very easily. So I auditioned for the school play a year earlier than I should have at the age of 15. And to my shock, I got cast. And so... I did this play, and it was it was a wonderful experience. It was Jean Anouilly's Ring Round the Moon, and I had a lovely little character part. It was uh, not so little actually; it was a nice part, and it was wonderful because a there were girls in in the play from another school, so that I was suddenly exposed to to this kind of whole new thing, uh, being in an all boys school. And then I remember on the opening night, being backstage before coming on, and feeling the most incredible. Fear I'd ever felt in my life, but it was also the most incredible excitement. It was the adrenaline pouring through me, and I, I, I'd never felt anything quite like it. I was absolutely petrified, 
But at that moment, I knew, I had a moment of clarity, uh, as one occasionally does in one's life. I knew that this was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. It was very, very odd. I mean, it was just, despite, I don't know whether it was the, the, the adrenaline as a drug that was so intoxicating, because I was sort of really frightened. But um, I went on and, and I had, you know, worked very well and I got laughs and stuff. And I was like, yes, this is, this is for me. And, and what was weird was that I came from a very, very ordinary middle class home. Um, my father was a, a, a sort of agricultural technician. My mother was a housewife and then worked as a doctor's secretary. There was no kind of connection to show business. And I kind of vaguely knew that there was something in my past, but not what. And it was only in my early 20s when I was at drama school, I discovered that my entire family on my father's side, the, you know, before his generation, were all actors or um, singers or performers or comedians going back generations. And, and they were either in theatre as producers, directors, actors... And so I found my whole family history. So it was actually literally in my blood, which I, I didn't know about when I made that decision at 15. And then I discovered my grandfather had a, a vaudeville act with Charlie Chaplin in his early days, which was pretty, pretty romantic. See, it's funny. Um, that's my parents, you know, or my dad's past. My mom is 92 now. And they, they never talked about that stuff. Like as you said, you know, your, your grandfather was with the, vaudeville you think as a kid you'd be hearing that all the time but parents were different back then like my parents were very stoic and it's just funny when you hear stories later like my dad was in d-day and he never really talked about it until i was like 25 and then he'd tell the yeah. stories but it's just weird like the generations how they changed like us we all love to talk but it's like our parents yeah. hardly ever wanted to say anything no that's true my father never talked about the war and um, and he, he took me to to see the battle of britain once that was the only time I remember him talking. Twice, actually, I remember him talking about it. And we went to Battle of Britain, which I loved. I was very young. You know, it was a black and white film. And and, and he he said, did you enjoy it? And I said, yeah, it was great. And I, I said, what do you think? And he said, it was hard to watch. He said, I, I was part of this. And he had been one of the people that had relieved Belson when it was sort of liberated. So he had seen horrors, but unimaginable horrors. And when I wanted to collect these bubblegum cards that were all first or Second World War kind of pictures and things, he, he wouldn't let me. He said, you can't do that and, and wouldn't really go into detail why. But it was a very kind of touchy area. And the reason he didn't talk about show business was another reason. He had been given away by his father to be raised by an aunt because his, his father had left uh, the, the wife for a chorus girl and left three sons um, to, to be uh, raised by her, and she couldn't afford it, so she gave the middle son away to an aunt. So my aunt, or great aunt it was in this case, became my grandmother. And and my I never met my grandmother or my grandfather. My grandfather died before I was born. So I, it, that whole side of the family was kept a secret for, for a good reason. Well, I don't know about a good reason, but a reason. Now, you know, in, in the States, someone goes to acting school, and they go... Broadway, or they go to LA, they get the beckoning. What is the path of, of a young woman? When you're young, I know you're going to drama school and you, you tell a great story in the book about an experience with the silence. And uh, yeah. what, what, is, what is the goal for an actor in England? Do they, do they think and do they sit there and go, okay, we're, we're going to go perform in London? Or what, what is like a young actor's goal? Or is it to sit there and go to the States? 
Well, I can't speak for anybody else, and, and, and I can only speak for me, uh, and, and, and I was of a different generation from, obviously, young actors now. I, I left drama school in 1978, I think. My sole ambition, and I think I'd read this somewhere, I think it was Rod Steiger or someone had been interviewed, and said, they said, what is success in show business? And he said, survival. And I, I had no greater ambition than to do this for my whole life. I was prepared to live like a student if I had to, if I could live and do be an actor my whole career. So I, I foresaw, you know, yes, starting at the bottom and working my way up. I did kind of feel like um, it was a bit like entering the civil service in England. It was like you had to put this, you know, unless you were on the fast track and you got lucky very, very early, you were going to always just have to pay your dues in theatre and then you do this and then you might be lucky enough to be given a little role in television and then blah, blah, blah. And I, and I did feel like, oh, this is going to be a long haul. And so when the chance came, when I, when I came to America uh, to, to, to do that job, and I ended up sort of having to decide after I ended up on Broadway, what do I do now? It wasn't terribly difficult to say, well, let's ride this while it lasts, because I, I, I would have to go back and almost start again. And then, um, you know, years after year would go by, and I, I reached the point of no return, that I was, my career was here in, in America. And since then, obviously, in the last 10, 15, 20 years, I've, I've worked a fair bit in England, too, because I had made my name by then. But I didn't absolutely did not set out to, to come to America. I mean, the, the wildest dreams, you think, wow, it'd be amazing to be in films. But that happened to so few people that I, I didn't I wasn't looking that far ahead. So, no, I mean, it, this was not a career path that I had plotted out. Now, I always I always find stage actors fascinating and i love talking to stage actors who when they finally get in front of the tv or movie it's completely different because stage i used to do stand-up comedy so you grind if the crowd yeah. hates you you're screwed there's nothing you can yeah. do there's no cut for you what was it like when you first started getting in front of camera because you were on stage and you were on broadway and you you were you know you're used to that live take and you're not used to i'm sure like the the blocking they do in uh, film and tv what was it like when you started transitioning was it was it hard for you or was it just that you were you well, just wanted to act yeah no i mean it's a good question i mean i think i'd already done some voiceovers so i made that i kind of figured out that voiceover acting is different in the fact that you have to kind of focus it all, all your acting towards a microphone so i knew that once there was a camera involved and i and i did my first TV job when I came to LA in 1985 um, I knew that you had to focus your performance for a camera and there was no audience um, although a lot of the early jobs I did were in sitcoms with studio audiences so you got multi-camera and the danger there is that you're in a kind of no man's land and you're not playing to the cameras you're playing to the audience so you have to kind of find a balance um, uh, uh, but but it's quite a good transition actually for for theatre actors to, to have done those sitcoms because you get you're used to the feedback from the audience with laughs um, uh, and you've got to get used to playing for cameras and, and in this case three or four cameras that are running simultaneously. So so that was there was a halfway house there to do to to do with that. But I don't think I really really kind of broke out in the way that I would like to say I totally understood um, camera acting until Best in Show because I I had to do so little in that and I had to, to tell what I wanted to tell with looks and 
in my eyes because I was kind of simultaneously or not simultaneously and progressively amused by Fred Willard's antics, then confused, then really annoyed. But I was also live with him on this TV show we were commentating on um, our, our roles in the movie. So I had to kind of hide that, but you had to see it as well. So it forced me to do a very concentrated form of acting. And, and I kind of watched it and was really thrilled to see that how much you can do with very little, that a little goes a long way. And I think it changed my whole approach to, to camera acting after that. Now... I know you're a big Crystal Palace fan, mm -hmm. and uh, it's funny. I always said I when I lived in L.A. I met a friend. He's passed since then, but it was like 18 years ago. And we called him English David because he was from England, and his name was David. And I remember I would we'd always call me up and go, "Do you fancy a pint?" And so I meet him at a bar in Burbank, and he was going back to England, and he was a Manchester United fan, and he goes, "I want to get you a soccer shirt," and I said, "I don't want Manchester United because everyone loves him. I don't want Arsenal." Or Chelsea, so I ended up with it as a Tottenham Hotspur shirt, which was great. But for you, tell me what it's like being a Crystal Palace fan because you guys have been going up and down like you've been relegated before, right? Yes, okay. I want to well, know what that's like because I, I grew up as a Philadelphia Eagles fan, and for all my whole life, we never won a Super Bowl, so it always gets so upset. And I just wonder what it's like because I've, I've been watching Ted Lasso too. What's it like when your team gets relegated? How's how does the city react? Is everyone just pissed? I mean, what happens? Oh, it's awful. But first of all, as an Eagle, Philadelphia Eagles fan, you've got to support Crystal Palace because their nickname is the Eagles. Okay. And they, they have a massive support in Philadelphia, Crystal Palace. Um, and by the way, Ted Lasso is all shot at Crystal Palace. That entire series, all the football stuff is shot there um, in the stadium, uh, including the opening credits. Relegation is incredibly painful, but promotion is incredibly ecstatic. So that's the difference between American and, and, and uh, European sports is you have that mobility, upward and downward mobility, because you have leagues, one, two, three, four uh, in some countries. In England, there's four professional leagues. And so the top league is obviously major, major money. But here, you know, there's, you don't get teams promoted from AAA to, to Major League Baseball. You know, you don't get that. Um, so it, the, the stakes are very, very high. Um, and, and, you know, when Crystal Palace were a yo-yo team going up and down for years, and then they've now, next year, will be entering, uh, I think they're safe this year, they won't get relegated this year, touch wood, but they'll be in their 10th season consecutively, which is a massive new record. I mean, they've never been close to that. They usually last one or two seasons and then gone again and then up again a few years later. So I'm used to that pain, that heartache, and the, the roller coaster ride. Um, and, and this last decade has been a real rarity. But also I find it fascinating that you said oh, you're a fan of Crystal Palace without having to qualify that, because 20 years ago, if we'd had this conversation, you'd have had to say the, the soccer team in England, Crystal Palace. I have a flag when I moved into my house here 11, 12 years ago in the Hollywood Hills, and I have a, a flagpole, and I didn't know what to put up there, so I put a Crystal Palace flag. And people would go, what's that? What, 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 what is Crystal Palace? And now I go outside for a walk and people go, oh, I saw you drew with the uh, Spurs last weekend or oh, great result against Man United. Uh, I think, you know, what are you, 12th now in the league? I mean, everybody knows. I mean, it's like it has exploded in the last decade, Premier League in this country. So I, I, it was, it's amazing to me that you were able to say that without having to qualify it. Well, no, because yeah, well, like, yeah, but that's funny that you have to say that because, and it is funny when I would talk to my friend David, you know, about, 
football, and uh, he was also an Eagles fan, the Philadelphia Eagles fan. But yeah, yeah. You, you forget, we forget, you know, how big it is. Like, the premiership is like the NFL, and a lot of people don't recognize that, and it's just, it's great, because I watch premiership, and I also watch Mexican soccer. You know, I used to work with a guy who was a Cruz Azul fan. I made him a Philadelphia Eagles fan, he became a Cruz Azul fan. So I watch it, and I think Americans are finally, I mean, it's taken for years, are actually enjoying soccer now. Yeah, and the MLS, I mean, it's fantastic. It's exploding. The, the the professional league here, the standard still is, you know, probably lower championship, second division in, in England. Um, but but the uh, it's exploding in terms of audiences, I mean, or crowds, I should say. I mean, well, I think it was Charlotte had their first game this season and they had 70,000 people. I mean, that's extraordinary um, for a new team. Uh, and, and, and most of them sell out. You know, Seattle regularly gets 50-something thousand, I think. So, yeah, it's definitely taken off. But, but, but in terms of, you know, watching globally on TV, the NBC obviously garnered the rights for Premier League and, and they've renewed it for a vast sum of money. And, and it's, it's a big deal now in America to watch those games, you know, and it's, it's the Premier League in the world. Um, so it's, things have changed. I used to have to watch, uh, when I first moved to LA, I, I had a 10-foot satellite dish in my backyard and I could get one game a weekend, you know, I would sort of, through the dish, um, kind of, I think it was almost pirating it at that point. So how did you come up with a title for the book, Caught With My Pants Down? Where did that come from? <laughs> Well, we went through a few of them before we ended up on that. Um, it, it is based on a story in the book that there's a whole chapter where I did get literally caught with my pants down in a terribly embarrassing situation. Um, and then I realized there were actually three stories in the book where I get caught with my pants down physically, to which a lot of people have said, uh, didn't you learn from the first time? And to which I answered, evidently not. Um, but it was also a metaphor for me. It was a metaphor of a life in the public eye or show business. Um, where one's literally getting caught with my pants down. And, you know, I've done, a, a, in my theatre days, I did quite a lot of farce where you end up with, caught with your pants down. So it felt like a fun, catchy title. It, it, uh, it just, it, it, I wanted to say it was fun. The book is a piece of entertainment with a bit of philosophy thrown in. Um, and, and, and it felt like, I don't want a serious, you know, memory. It's, it, it, it it's it's less of an autobiography and more of a romp through four decades in 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 Hollywood and show business and and life really. It, like, there's a lot of stories in there that have nothing to do with show business about life and some soccer stories and whatever um, that that all I hoped would entertain people and and uh, have some sort of meaning. And there's a couple of chapters I think that are quite emotional. Um, so caught with my pants down felt like a I'm exposing myself. You know, and I am emotionally, you know, physically, psychologically in this book. And it felt like an honest title. Now, you've had such a long career and you've done very well. How do you pick and choose what was going to go on the book? Because there's got to be some gems that I want you to tell me one or two later that didn't make the book because I, I love that kind of stuff. But how do you, when you're sitting there, do you sit with your editor or is there something that really means something to you where you go, okay, this has to stay. What was the process of whittling the belt down? It's 300 pages. What was the process yeah. of whittling it down to that? It was, the criteria for me was, that I think there's 38 chapters. None of them are particularly long. I wanted it to read like 
uh, a page turner. But you, you, you know, and a lot of people have said they've read it in one or two sittings, which is fabulous. I wanted it to be a really easy conversational read. Like I'm just chatting with you and telling you how it is. There's a quite a bit of swearing in the book. I don't pull any punches. I name names, which very few memoirs do. Uh, occasionally I'll protect someone's identity if I feel it's not fair game. There was an instance of someone who behaved badly because they were a drug addict and then they went into rehab and it was a very long time ago and I thought that's not fair. That person does not name, need to be named and they were a studio executive anyway so no one would know who the hell they were anyway. <laughs> but when people have behaved badly, I call them out on it and, and, and not in a you know bitter or mean way. I just go, this is what happened, and I don't think that's right for people to behave that way. I don't care who they are, what walk of life they're in, or what age they are. Nobody should behave like that. And similarly, I give credit where credit's due, and there's the one chapter where I talk about uh, the 10 A-listers I worked with, nine I loved, and one was a four-asterisks word, and the, the publisher did make me make that four asterisks instead of see you next Tuesday. Um, so, so that, uh, uh, but I, in that chapter, I rehabilitate some people's images because there's a lot of candidates for that four asterisk word. And, and, and I say, no, they, I had a great time with them. They were terrific. So, and this one person at the end of the chapter, I really launch into why I disliked them and, and how badly I behaved. I thought they were. And, and they're major A-listers. The two of the people I, I, I slam one's, Another one, a third person is now deceased, so they can't sue me. Um, but but the criteria was, is it interesting for every reader? If it's not, it's gone. I didn't want to write a, 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 a story. I, I just structured it around my life and career. I structured it just in terms of the, the through line. But it was not interesting for me to go, and then I did you know, this play, and then I did that TV series, and then I did this film, and then I went back and did this TV show, and then I worked with so-and-so. It wasn't interesting. It's not interesting to me, so why would it be interesting to anyone else? And, and the book isn't selling on my name. You know, as I say in the, 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 the introduction, you know, one out of ten people probably knows my name. Five or six absolutely will recognise my face, and ten out of ten will probably... We'll say if you give them a list of everything I've written or been in, we'll say yes, I, I've seen one of those or been, you know, definitely. Uh, so it, it, I had to make sure that this wasn't lazy. It, it couldn't just be my life story. It couldn't be. So there is not a chapter in the book that doesn't have, in my opinion, a great, amusing, or interesting, or impactful story, or anecdote, or purpose. And that was my criteria. And if it didn't, it was gone it was gone. And that's what the pruning process was solely based on. Is this, is this appealing for everybody or is it just inside info that who cares? Now through your career, you, you know, you look at IMDb. What's weird. You, you wrote an episode of two episodes of silk stockings, which I don't think everyone remembers that show. And that's just, when you see yeah. your background, you're like, wow, wait, silk stockings. But uh, how did you get into TV writing? How, what was the, what was the transition? Well, I've always wanted to write, uh, and I never had time when I was doing theatre, because you're always performing or, or rehearsing. So when I moved to L.A., I had a transition period where I was working a lot less in terms of time. I'd, I'd get a job on a TV show if I was lucky, and I'd work, you know, once every six weeks, whatever. So I had a lot of time on my hands, so I, I started writing. And the first thing I wrote was with my ex-wife. We had got this dog 
that had was a nightmare. I mean, I'll, I, I mean, my, my career seems to have revolved around dogs at a certain level, uh, given best in show. But we got this mutt who was adorable, and I loved the, the dog immensely, and the dog stayed with us, despite us trying to um, offload the dog early on. It was an absolute nightmare, and it destroyed our house and life, but it made us laugh. Um, and we, uh, a friend said, you know, you should write down some of these stories as a, and write a movie, a comedy. And we wrote it. Um, I wrote, I just finished my last play I'd done in L.A. And I thought, I, I, I've got a chance to write this. And then my ex-wife was a, a former Saturday Night Live writer. And she came in and did a rewrite. And then we did a pass together. And we ended up selling the movie uh, on spec for quite a bit of money. And I suddenly had another career. I was suddenly a writer. Now, that film didn't end up uh, being made because there was a lawsuit. Another, a major studio made a similar film and it, and the company who bought ours uh, sued them because they said they'd stolen some of the stuff and they had, I think, because they, they uh, settled out of court. And some of the scenes, I mean, listen, people are always writing similar ideas. It's, it's, it just happens. You know, there's, 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 that happens all the time. Um, but... Uh, and I, at first I thought, well, it's just a coincidence. And then I read the script of the studio film and it was like, whoa, that is like, wow, that's almost word for word what we wrote. Uh, and certainly that's a gag that was pretty specific. So anyway, it got settled. So that film never got made, but it put me on the map as a writer. And then I was mostly writing films. And then I kind of wanted to do some TV and a TV producer I knew was working on that show, Silk Stalking. So I said, oh, I'll write a couple of episodes of that. And I think I wrote an episode of Poltergeist and uh, various things just, just to kind of get, you know, change of pace. I'd mastered the screenplay format. I hadn't, you know, mastered the hour TV show format. So I just wanted to do that. And then I sort of write it half hours and I wanted to just write in every sphere that was possible. Yeah. Well, Family Tree, you created. How did that come about? Because that's a show that was, I, I, I saw it, and uh, it was one of those shows, you know, it's, you're creating a series, and, you know, that's the difference. When, when you create a TV series, I know you have to think of the future. It's just not like sitting a screenplay, and it's 120 pages, and you have yeah. 40, 40, 40 uh, pages. This, you have to actually figure, I mean, how did you tackle creating a show, and did you have a bunch of seasons figured in your head, or did you just plan for one season? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, that came about because I, I, by that stage, I'd done three films with Christopher Guest. I'd done Best in Show, Mighty Wind, and Feel Consideration. And he called me up uh, out of the blue. He hadn't done anything for almost 10 years since For Your Consideration. And he called me up to have lunch. And, and over lunch, he said, I've got this idea. I've been researching my own family tree. And I wondered if it was an idea for a film. We could do a film about somebody, you know, because Ancestry.com is so popular. Who do you think you are? And I kind of like the idea of doing a comedy based around somebody looking for their ancestry. And I immediately said, I think it's a great idea, Chris, but I believe it's a TV show, not a movie, because the very nature of a family tree is it's got branches and it spreads out. And there's no linear one through story. It's not a singular story. It's, it's by its very nature going to go here and there and everywhere. And so he said, that's interesting. And, you know, he, his wife, Jamie Lee Curtis, had a producer friend who said if Chris ever had any TV ideas to come to her. So we, we talked some more and we, we started writing a little bit together. And, and with Chris, you know, because those movies are, 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 and the TV show 
uh, 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 partly improvised or largely improvised, you have to write really detailed outlines because if you just showed up and improvised, it would be a mess. You couldn't get anything done because no one would know what had come before. So you have to write these very detailed outlines. Like for the a movie, it would be 30 pages, 35 pages, as opposed to a 90-page script. Um, and it's very dense, and every scene is blocked out and written out and mapped out. So the actors, and so there are suggestions of jokes and dialogue, but the actors on the day can do their own dialogue so that it has that fresh feel. Uh, and we write very detailed character biographies uh, down to literally what school the person went to, what their first dog's name was and all that stuff. So it was it was a different experience, but we, we wrote actually all, we had mapped out all uh, the whole show, I think. Once we'd sold the, 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 the concept to the HBO and BBC, we then went away and wrote all eight episodes of that first season um, right away, and we had to map it all out. Um, and, and I think when we pitched it, we had a lot of it worked out where we were going with it. And we knew that it would be the first four episodes would be in England, and then the next four would be in the United States as Chris O'Dowd's character kind of searches for his American family. So, yeah, that, that was it was written a bit more like we would have written a film um, because of that. Uh, it wasn't like we were writing one episode while shooting another and editing another. It wasn't done like your standard TV show. So it was written and shot a bit more like a movie. Now, how did your relationship start with Christopher Guest? I mean, what 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 was the formation of that? Because... The guy's a genius. I mean, everyone. I mean, you're always. If you're at a party, if you if you bring up Best in Show or if you bring up any of his movies, people are like, "Oh yeah, that's great," you know. And and even though I like the Big Picture, was one of his early ones with Kevin Bacon. But yeah. how did you how did you meet? How did you guys start this working relationship? Well, I knew Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara socially, and um, and and so I'd met Chris I think maybe at one or two parties very briefly but he doesn't say a lot so he, the conversation is probably hello and that's it um, so uh, Eugene actually called me um, and said look we, we just did this film that, that, which I'd actually uh, gone to the premiere of uh, Waiting for Guffman uh, and when I say just done it, would, it was uh, two years before and he said we're, we're thinking of doing another one about a dog show um, we've got this part that uh, we think that you could be right for or I think you could be, and I want you to meet Chris. So I went in to meet them at the Castle Rock offices, um, and they said, look, you know, this is Fred Willard's going to play one commentator, and we want the straight kind of British guy as the other. We thought it might be funny. And Chris and Eugene are both very, very kind of introverted people and not socially that kind of adept, shall we say. So I had this very uncomfortable meeting where I sat in the office, and they were just sort of, say a monosyllabic sentence and then that was it and I just kept talking because I didn't know what to fill the gaps as one does I mean I'm not the most gregarious person uh, believe it or not but but I just kept babbling and then I, I finally thought this is nonsense I'm now talking absolute bollocks I'm just talking for the sake of it so I stood up and said look here's a DVD of my, my work Chris um, that's what we had in those days and, and have a look and if it seems right I'd, I'd love to do it and I left, and I was driving home thinking, how the hell could I have conducted that meeting better? It was really awkward. And the phone rang in the car, and a voice, very quiet voice, said, uh, is this Jim? I said, yes, this is Christopher Guest. Uh, would you like to be in the movie? And that was it. 
And I said, I'd love to, thank you. And that was about it. Uh, and then I had the complication of this other show I was doing at the BBC that I mentioned. And um, luckily, the BBC let me out for those three days uh, to go to, to Vancouver. So that's how I started. Now, The Tooth Fairy, when yes. you wrote that, uh, did you have The Rock in mind? I mean, or what What was, when you put the story together, because it's just, yeah. it's just, it's such a bizarre idea, like The Rock, you know, I mean, tell me how that came about. I did. It was one of the few things I've written where I, I had the poster in mind before the script. And it came from an idea. I was talking with my daughter, who was nine at the time. And we were over dinner. I said I wanted to write a movie, a Santa Claus movie, because I love Christmas. And we, we talked a bit, and I realized that, that they'd all been done. I couldn't think of anything original. So I said, what about the tooth fairy? And she loved that idea. And so the next day, I, I wrote some notes down, and, and, and I kind of formulated an idea for a movie. And I did have this idea that it should be someone large, like Vince Vaughn or, um, or The Rock or, or um, you know, Tim Robbins. It should be a big guy. Uh, and, you know, Schwarzenegger, someone like that, in a tutu or with wings. I could see the poster. And I had a meeting that week with a general meeting with uh, Jason Blum, who was a young producer at the time who'd just left Miramax. And he's now the biggest producer of horror movies, Blumhouse Films, is the biggest producer of horror movies in the world. But but he, he liked the idea too. And he said, well, go away and write a whole treatment for the entire film. So I did. And then as I was doing that, I realized I actually wanted to write something else at that point. And so I didn't want to write this screenplay. I wanted to just do the story for it and the whole outline. Uh, and so I wrote this, whatever it was, 15, 20 page treatment. And, and, and I said to Jason, look, I, I've already written family type movies. And I think this is a mainstream studio film. I think you can find someone that's more suited than me because my, my taste is a little bit off center. It's a little bit more indie. And so he said, that's fine. You know, just produce it and, you know, executive produce and, and write the story. So, and then we, we found Lal Gantz and Babalu Mandel who'd written, you know, so many big movies, Parenthood, City Slickers, uh, all those great movies. And they liked the idea and came on board. And it was a, a different experience for me because I, I, I didn't have to do the heavy lifting anymore. I would just be at the studio meetings and they would, you'd get, you know, a barrage of notes. And um, the notes vary from good to incomprehensible to shit. I mean, just ridiculous. And normally I'd sit there with my sphincter tightening by the minute because I go, I can do that. I, I don't know how to even address that. I don't understand it. And that's ridiculous. How do I kind of duck doing that? And, you know, you try not to get defensive and, and get into kind of immediate discussions. Of, oh, that's ridiculous. Why would you do that? So, but the, now I was in a position where I could just nod politely and go, absolutely, and then turn to Lal Gantz and Babalu Mandan and say, what do you think, guys? Uh, and completely pass the buck. Uh, that said, I did. I, I think I did help a little bit um, as a writer uh, from a producer's point of view when we came up, you know, against any roadblocks. And then there were some other writers brought in once they'd fulfilled their contractual obligations. And we got a couple of writers, um, Sternin and Ventimiglia, who'd been on The Simpsons, and they did some drafts. And then many, many writers, as happens with studio films, did bits and pieces here. Uh, but the five people ended up with screenplay credit, uh, those two I just mentioned, uh, and, and Randy Mayhem Singer, who had written Mrs. Doubtfire, did the final draft. 
And I think Mrs. Doubtfire and Tooth Fairy are her only kind of, uh, well, they were then, her only kind of actual solid credits because she had made this incredible career doing rewrites uh, and punching up scripts. So she would, she would but, but, but not enough to get your name on it. So, but she did on this and she did a great job. But I got the sole story by credit, so I, I got the land's share of the residuals. <laughs> um, and, um, and they, five of them, shared the screenplay credit. So I wasn't actually involved, really, with the making of the film, because by then I was actually working on something else. And I went up to the set for a couple of days, and someone said, what are you, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm one of the executive producers. And they said, oh, what does that mean? I said, well, it varies on different movies. You know, this movie it means that I come onto the set for two days and people ask me what the hell I'm doing here and I tell them I'm executive producer. And they said, oh, OK, um, you may pass. And so I went in to the set and uh, it was incredible because I'd never met Dwayne Johnson and I was introduced to him and he stopped the whole shoot and said, uh, gathered everybody around, cast, crew, everybody, and said, I'd like you all to meet the man who's responsible for us being here today. And I thought, I couldn't believe, as a writer, no one had ever, ever, especially on a film, I mean, in TV, it's different. The writer, producer is king. But on a, on a movie set, it's like, you're lucky if you're allowed on. And if you are allowed on, it's please go away and just hang out by the craft services and don't disturb anyone. So it was just such a, an incredibly classy move for him to do that. And it, and it did actually make me aware. I mean, I thanked him profusely and I saw so far and above the call of duty but it, but it did make me aware as I looked around. I went, wow, yeah. Um, there are two, three hundred, four hundred people who are employed doing this thing because I had this goofy idea of a dinner with my daughter two or three years ago. It was an amazing feeling. And then when the movie went on to make, I think it made 130-something million at the box office alone, forget all ancillary things, and has now been seen by millions of people and kids all over the world, it's an amazing feeling to, to know that that just came from this little germ of an idea over dinner one night. Um, you know, it's fantastic. I mean, I, when I set out to start my career as an actor, you know, I, I didn't see beyond weekly rep or fortnightly rep in, in England. So to sort of have that kind of scope of, of thing happen was, was kind of bizarre. Now, I, I want you to give me a story that didn't make the book, because I, I can tell you're a good storyteller. And I, then, <clears throat> then if you don't mind, I want you to tell me a story that didn't make the book. I wrote it in the concentrate in the book because you, know, you want people to read it. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the story, and I won't mention the name, I'm afraid, because the reason I took the story out was that I felt it was a bit unfair, and I'll tell you why. I... <laughs> when I was with my ex-wife, we, we became friends with uh, a, a well-known actor and writer and producer in England and, and um, he's, he's a lovely fellow I, I can tell you his name his name is Mel Smith and he's sadly deceased now and and Mel was friends with a very well-known British actress and um, her husband was a well-known director and he said let's all have dinner and we said oh we'd have it at our house and um and, and I invited Catherine O'Hara and her husband, um, Bo, Bo Welsh, as well. And so we had this dinner all set up. And I had that day been writing in my office and uh, had this weird episode of um, I, my heart was started going crazy. And I didn't know whether I was having a heart attack or whatever. I was only in my early 40s, I think. And I went to my friend who's a cardiologist in Santa Monica immediately. I drove down there 
And he did some tests and said, oh, you, it, it's atrial fibrillation, which can happen. You know, it's, you're an athlete and sometimes happens, usually happens to people when they're sort of 65 or older. And he said, we'll give you some medication. And if it doesn't stop, you'll have to do something about it. And it did stop. But I then had to stop drinking coffee and alcohol and whatever for a while just to let it settle down. So I knew that I couldn't drink at this dinner, which was I like a glass of wine with dinner. I like more than a glass of wine with dinner. <laughs> and um, anyway, Catherine and Bo showed up uh, roughly on time, which is astonishing because Catherine O'Hara is notoriously late. She, uh, this is another story that didn't make the book, but but not because I, I, I don't think it did. But Catherine was almost two hours late for her own wedding. <laughs> that, that's, that's how late Catherine is. So Catherine was late um, for her wedding. And, um, but, but anyway, so Catherine was on time and, um, and, and uh, uh, we were waiting and waiting for the others to come. And we waited an hour, and they didn't come. And we waited an hour and a half, and it was getting really... And then finally, they got a, a text, I think, saying, oh, we're on our way, sorry, sorry, we stopped for a drink and got delayed. And they all arrived, and they were very much worse for wear. They clearly stopped for more than just a drink. There had been quite a lot of things involved, and I don't think it was just drink. And they were all <laughs> bouncing off the ceiling, including this this actress, who was 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 perfectly nice and very sweet to our daughter and stuff but then as the evening wore on they kind of dominated the dinner and started talking more and more and I could see Catherine O'Hara and her husband kind of getting more and more kind of withdrawn as was I because I wasn't drinking or as was my ex-wife and and our friends from England who invited these two uh were also sort of even getting quieter and and this actress very well-known actress became more and more belligerent as the evening went on. And she started a subject, a, a name of a, a friend of mine, a great friend of mine in England came up and I said, it's a, I'm, this is a great friend of mine. And she just tore him apart. Said, oh, he's a terrible actor, dreadful actor. And I was like, he's, this is a great friend of mine. And, yeah, yeah, but he's tough. And then it went, it got more and more negative. And we were now at like one in the morning and I really wanted to go to bed. I was so tired. I wasn't drinking. They were still flying. Catherine and Bowen, I think, left by then. Uh, they just ducked out. And she got more and more unpleasant and then started slamming this playwright who I was a great admirer of and was disabled and said, oh, yeah, that, that fucker, he should, I'm glad he's dead. You know, and I'm thinking, this is getting ugly. And I picked up some dishes and went, to the, <laughs> went into the kitchen and as a kind of little dig and aside... In the, similar to what I did to Fred Willard in, in Best in Show, I said, yeah, and that Mother Teresa, what a cunt she was. <laughs> and I left, and then I came back, and she said, you know what? I've got a friend, a photojournalist friend, who, who did a piece on Mother Teresa, and she was a cunt. <laughs> and then she launched into destroying Mother Teresa. And I, by that stage, I was just laughing because it got so ludicrous. Now, the reason I didn't tell that story in the book Without you, I could have probably told it without naming the name of the person, but I didn't, and I ended up cutting it because it seemed. Uh, um, and I, perhaps in the sequel, I'll tell the story without the name, because she did write a very apologetic letter immediately, and it arrived a day later or two days later, apologising profusely for her behaviour. And um, I have since seen her socially a few times 
a uh, number of times since and has been impeccably behaved and always apologized for that evening. So that felt like low hanging fruit. That wasn't fair. That's someone who behaved really badly, copped to it, and I don't think is um, is a four asterisk word. So that is a story that you, you have that is not in the book um, exclusively. Well, give me a story before we go. Give me a story that's in the book so people can have an idea of how great your stories are. Oh, that I, I think that's, I think I've done myself justice. I think I, a story in the book now, it's spoiler alert. There's loads of them. I mean, the first day at drama school was, is, is the opening chapter when I call it the moment of truth. When I, when I went out for, you know, you're trying to impress everyone. It's your first day at drama school. And, and I didn't know if I could act, you know, I'd done university stuff and, and I'm there trying to, impress everyone and, and 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 lunchtime came and i was really hungry by lunchtime because i wasn't used to getting up so early and uh, at university i used to get up at midday and I, I went out to on my own to this chinese restaurant a, a hole in the wall chinese restaurant um and basically ate the entire menu um everything on the menu anyway not the actual menu and i waddled back to drama school looked at what the next class was and it said movement and I was like, oh, God, and that, that is not the kind of movement I wanted at that point. I figured it wasn't. Um, and so I got dressed for movement. And it was we had to wear the women wore leotards, black leotards. And the men, this was 1978. I don't know why they made us do this. We had to wear black tights and um, roll neck, turtleneck, black top. And it was we just looked like tits. And so we went into this class. I'm very self-conscious in this big studio and this rather camp American teacher says, okay, class, we're going to do headstands. So here's the mat. You'll come up to the mat. You'll do your headstand. Two people will hold your feet. I'll say release and off you go. So I watched a few people do this and they did it quite well. And I was really intimidated. My turn came, I got into the headstand and I was like, okay, I'm ahead of the game. I did the headstand. That's the tough bit. And then the two people holding my ankles, um, were told they were said uh, the teacher said and release and so they did and I came down hit the mat and as I hit the mat I did release I released the loudest hardest sharpest fart you have ever heard in your life it was beyond a fart it was like a gun going off it was like a starting pistol and I lay there absolutely mortified I, my eyes were closed lying on the mat and it's like that moment if you have kids when they fall over and there's those three seconds before the tears and the screaming begins. There's that silence as it registers. And I'm sitting there or lying there rather with my eyes closed, counting the seconds before the explosion of laughter and derision. And it didn't come. I waited and I waited and it didn't come. And so I cautiously opened one eye and I looked up. And there I saw the entire class gathered around the mat, looking down at me as if they were staring into an open grave. Their faces were white almost, were with horror. And I heard the teacher then say, oh my God, what was that? And without a beat, I said, eh, it's my ankle. Yes, it's, a, it's an old soccer injury. Sometimes it goes and it makes that sound. <laughs> And he said, oh, OK, help him up, please. A couple of these lovely actresses helped me to my feet. And I, I fake hobbled my way to a bench. And I sat out the rest of the class watching people have to do all these awful things. And I thought to myself, this is the moment of truth. I can act. I, 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 I could leave drama school today 
And of course I couldn't, there were certain techniques I needed to learn, but I knew at that moment I had it in me. Um, I did have it in me more than, more than talent. I had, <laughs> I had gas. Uh, and the, and the postscript is, uh, and where I draw the moral and the point of the story is that then I, in the men's changing room afterwards, some of the guys were going, you know, are you okay? It sounded terrible. And I said, yes, yes, it's, I feel a bit better already. And I, it's probably a couple of hours. You know what? It's, I think I'd flex my ankle. It feels okay right now. And they started leaving to go to the next class. And one bloke, one guy hung by. I call him a bloke. He was actually an American student. So he was a guy. He said, Jim, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah, sure. And he said more of a statement than a question. He said, you fired him, didn't you? And I said, busted, yes. And he put his hand up and went, fucking A, man, high five. And, and at that point, my reputation was born. Um, and I guess, I guess that's probably why I played more comedy than drama um, at drama school. But that, that's the opening chapter of the, 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 the book. And, I, and I, my, what I draw from that, as I say, just goes to prove you can fool most of the people most of the time, but you can't fool everyone. Uh, and, and, and that's the, where the philosophy, <laughs> the, the homespun philosophy comes in in the book. Yeah. So there you go. You got one story in the book and one. That's all I can ask. That was wonderful. I want to thank you for coming on. Now, your website, well, we can get the book on Amazon. Yes, uh, my website is jimpiddock.com. Amazon, it caught with your pants down and other tales from life in Hollywood. Please order it and please, please, please. This is very important and not for me um, because it's, it's all my proceeds from the book are going to three charities, two, in, two for underprivileged kids, one in England, one in uh, the United Kingdom and the third for Ukrainian refugees. So I don't make a penny out of this book. Um, I'm happy to say it's doing rather well in its first month and was a bestseller for the first week or two, uh, number one new release in several categories. But really important is if you do buy it, please do, just for that reason alone, not me. Um, I think you'll be entertained. And please rate and review it on Amazon because um, that there affects the algorithms and they'll then recommend it to other people and it will make more money for these charities, which I seriously believe in. And I think you'll find it a welcome relief from the, the troubles of the world that we're in right now. Um, so that is all I have to say. That is my pitch, my sales pitch in terms of why you should buy the book. Um, but easiest way is Amazon. Um, but if you don't, you know, there's, uh, you can get it on other online bookstores or just order it through your own. If you want to go to an indie bookstore, they'll get it for you. So people, go check out the book. Go buy it. You're going to love it. Uh, go to my Please. website, uh, coopertalk.net. You can find over 900 episodes there. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Instagram, at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.